loud enough. I know, you tell me. You're going to have an easy job. I really doubt I'm going to go 20 minutes, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. So, sure, I'll pray. All right. Father, we love you so much. We just thank you for this time together. Uh, whenever we uh, center around a topic as important as this, Father, we just ask that your Holy Spirit be present and guide our hearts and minds today. Um, there's many within the uh, body of Christ that have some, some disagreements on this issue, and we must remember that we're always going to unify on the essentials. We're always going to unify on the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, born of a virgin, that died on the cross to pay for our sins. Lord, we just love you so much, and we thank you for that. We just ask that you be with the presenters today, and um, guide them and move them in a way that you would want your your precious name to be glorified and honored. Father, we love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright. You guys awake? Because I hope I don't put you back to sleep. Alright. Now, like Josh was saying, guys, this is a pretty important topic. Um, I'm going to kind of present the counter perspective to what is considered biblical inerrancy. Um... You know, there's all there's just a wide range of views on this topic. When you guys become very, very serious about your Bible and you really want to get at the Word of God and you really want to dig into the Word of God, it's going to be natural for you guys to have questions about the Word of God. Where did my Bible come from? How do I know what's in my lap? Is something I can trust? I'm sure that Josh has been doing a great job with you guys, teaching you guys that you can trust your Bible. Um, if you guys remember, I did that presentation for you guys talking about how can we know that Christianity is true? Are we just spinning our wheels here? Or is there a reason to be here? A lot of this topic will tie into that as well. Because if we don't have a word from God, we might as well just punt and go home. Why are we here? So that's why Josh and I thought it would be pretty important for you guys to hear some exchange between two guys who have, you know obviously dedicated their, their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and the study of his word. Um, and as you guys get older, you're, you're, you know, these questions about this subject are going to be natural. Um, it's going to be something that will enter your, your mind at some point. And if it doesn't just naturally come, if you guys just, you have faith and that's great, you still might be challenged at some point by some of your friends at school. Someone might come to you and say, hey, how do you know that Bible's true? Hasn't it been transmitted like the telephone game? Didn't so-and-so write it in Greek and then so-and-so wrote it in Latin and then so-and-so wrote it in Greek again and then back to English and then maybe back to Greek? You're going to hear stuff like that. And if you don't hear it from your friends at school, you're definitely going to hear it from the Discovery Channel or the, um, you know, one of those television programs. So it's good to start thinking about these things now. And um, like Josh said, I want to kind of present a counter perspective to you guys. Um, and uh, I hope I don't lose you here because some of the language can be kind of technical. Just uh, listen with your big ears, okay? All right. So it has been said that no person's education is complete if they do not know their Bible. Because the Bible is, is not taught in our education systems, there is a famine of the Word of God in our world today. Christians are being indoctrinated with ungodly secular thought before they even have an opportunity to get out from underneath their parents. 
we talked about some of that stuff when I was with you guys previously. Because there is such a lack of biblical awareness in our homes today, many are clueless when it comes to fulfilling their God-given purpose. Needless to say, it is important that we have a word from God, and the word is reliable. After all, if we're created beings, it would do us well to know exactly why we were created, and it would be well for us to know what God would have of all of us. After all, if God made this place, and He makes the rules, we kind of want to know what He has to say about everything. So that's why this topic is important. So here's what a few of our leaders, our world leaders, um, in the past have, have said regarding this topic and when they've recognized the importance and the significance of what the, the Bible's had to say. Here's a quote from George Washington. It is impossible to rightly govern the world without, the, without God and the Bible. Here's something Abraham Lincoln said. I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. Here's Patrick Henry. The Bible's worth all the other books that have ever been printed combined. Here's a quote from Napoleon. Who knows what, who Napoleon is? Short French guy? I heard he wasn't really short. I don't know. I don't know. I hope he's short. Okay. All right. So the Bible is no mere book, but is a living creature with power that conquers all that oppose it. You think uh, Napoleon has a has a degree in Bible. You think he's a biblical scholar? And he said the Bible itself is living because of what he experienced in his lifetime. It's kind of funny because that's kind of what Hebrews 4.12 says. I love it when pagans quote scripture and they don't even know it. If we abide in the principles taught in the Bible, our court will go on prospering and to prosper. But if we in our, our posterity neglect its instructions and authority, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us and bury all of our glory in profound obscurity. That's Daniel Webster. Maybe some of you guys, some of you guys have his dictionary. So, you know, he even recognized the fact that if we lose sight of what God has told us and what God has taught us, we're going to bury ourselves in obscurity. So can you trust the Bible that's in your laps today? Okay, that's a big important question that we all need to ask ourselves. In order to answer this question, I believe there are two main subjects we need to address when it comes to this subject. There's Bible inspiration, okay? And there's Bible preservation. What does it mean for God to inspire His Word? And what has God promised us as far as preservation? Right, so we're going to look at 2 Timothy 3:16 through 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that every man be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You guys will probably memorize that one at some point. There's also 2 Peter 1:20 through 21. Knowing first that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So Peter tells us right there how, you know, man isn't just arbitrarily writing what he wants, right? Okay, Psalm 68, 11. The Lord gave the word, and great was the company of those that published it. So those are some uh, typical verses we use to kind of describe some of those aspects of Bible inspiration. Bible inspiration. <clears throat> These both have a more elaborate definition, 
to really encompass Bible inspiration and preservation. And I think uh, apologist Matt Slick has some really good definitions that really lock in what Bible inspiration and preservation is all about. So when people speak of the Bible as inspired, they're referring to the fact that God divinely influenced the human authors of Scripture in such a way that they wrote the very Word of God. In the context of Scriptures, the word inspiration simply means God breathed. Inspiration means the Bible is truly the Word of God, and it makes the Bible unique among all other books. So there's no other book like it. It's the only book where God controls the information going in, and God controls the information going out. And it's not like that word God breathed. It's God moved men with His Spirit. That's, that's what inspiration is. It's not like I drive by a hillside, and I see a horse you know, frolicking in the meadow, and I go, oh, that's going to inspire me to write a poem or, you know, paint a painting. That's not what inspiration means in the sense of biblical inspiration. God is moving men with his spirit to write what he wants them to write. While there are different views to the extent to which the Bible is inspired, there can be no doubt that the Bible itself claims that every word and every part of the Bible comes from God. This view of scripture is often referred to as verbal plenary inspiration. That means the inspiration extends to the very words themselves, verbal, not just concepts or ideas. And the inspiration extends to all parts of scripture and all subject matters of scripture. Some people believe that only parts of the Bible are inspired, only the thoughts and concepts that deal with religion. But these views are inspirational, but these views of inspiration fall short of the Bible's claims about itself. So full verbal plenary inspiration is an essential characteristic of the Word of God. The extent of inspiration can be clearly seen in 2 Timothy 3.16. We've read that verse already. So that all the scriptures God breathed, it's useful for teaching, rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness. So that every man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. These tell us that God inspired all scripture and that he is profitable to us. It's not just parts of the Bible that deal with religious doctrines that are inspired, but each and every word from Genesis to Revelation. Because it's inspired by God, the scriptures are therefore authoritative when it comes to establishing doctrine and sufficient for teaching man how to have a right relationship with God. The Bible claims not only to be the inspired word of God, but to have the supernatural ability to change us and complete us. So what more do we need if we have the Bible? Other verse that deals with inspiration is 2 Peter 1.21. We read that one as well. This helps us understand that even though God used men with their distinct personalities and writing styles, God divinely inspired the very words they wrote. Jesus himself confirmed the verbal plenary inspiration in the scripture when he said, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you that until heaven and earth disappear, not one smallest letter, not least stroke of the pen by any means will disappear from the law until all these things be fulfilled. In these verses, Jesus is reinforcing the accuracy of the scripture down to the smallest detail and the slightest punctuation mark because it's the very word of God. Because the scriptures are inspired word of God, we can conclude that they are inerrant and authoritative. A correct view of God will lead us to a correct view of his word. I'll say that again. A correct view of God will lead us to a correct uh, view of his word. Because God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and completely perfect, his word, by its very nature, will have some of the same characteristics. If not all the same characteristics. Okay? The same verses that establish the inspiration of scriptures also establish that it is both inerrant and authoritative. Without a doubt, the Bible is what it claims to be the undeniable, authoritative word of God. 
So next we're going to talk about Bible preservation a little bit. And here's another really good definition of what we talk about when we mean preservation. Okay? We want to make sure it's been preserved. The doctrine of preservation is regard to Scripture. Uh, and regards to Scripture means that the Lord has kept His Word intact to its original meaning. Preservation simply means that we can trust the Scriptures because God has sovereignly overseen the process of transmission for the centuries. So God is sovereign. He's the ultimate manager. He's the governor of the universe. And he's always present in overseeing the transmission of his word. At the same time, we must also be aware that we do not possess the original autographs or the original writings. What we do have are thousands of manuscripts in which the original writings can be ascertained. By thorough examination and comparison to those manuscripts, it is determined that the original writings, it, we can determine what the original writings stated. This does not mean that all... I'm sorry, this does not mean that there are absolutely no differences between the manuscripts, but the differences are extremely small and insignificant and do not in any way affect the basic teachings or the meanings of God's Word. The differences are things like minor spelling variations, and we keep in mind that this would not affect the accuracy of Scripture, nor does it mean that God has not preserved His Word. So when we run into little differences, like sparing variations, spelling variations and, and, and word changes and things like that, um, like if you read, he went to Jerusalem or he went unto Jerusalem, these little variations don't affect the meaning. God has supernaturally kept and preserved his word. These early scribes whose jobs were to make exact copies of scripture were very meticulous. One example of their meticulous precision is the practice of counting all the letters given in the book and noting the middle letter of noting the middle letter of the book. They would do the same for the copy and make sure it matched. They employed such time-consuming and painstaking methods to ensure accuracy. You know, this is all that these guys did. You know, imagine if that was your job, to sit, like, sit down and meticulously copy every single letter. And not only was that your job, but the pressure was immense, especially when these guys had such a high regard for Scripture. Sometimes it was even under the penalty of death. If you messed up, you were toast. And as far as the Hebrews go, they would also number every single word, every single letter, also as a, as a numerical value, kind of like Latin, also with Greek, and they would add up everything, and if the, if the words didn't add up to what the manuscripts they had were copying or the scrolls, if, if they didn't match at all, or if they varied slightly, instead of fixing it, they would just throw it away and start over. So they probably got pretty good at copying that. Further, we can take note the following verses demonstrates God's plan to preserve his word. In Matthew 5.18, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. In this verse, Jesus declared that not even the smallest stroke of a letter in Hebrew alphabet would pass away until all is accomplished. He couldn't make that promise unless he was sure that God would preserve his word. Jesus also said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus again affirms that God's word will not pass away. God's word will remain and accomplish what God has planned. The prophet Isaiah, through the power of the Holy Spirit, stated that God's word would remain forever. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God stands forever. This is reaffirmed in the New Testament with Peter when he quoted the same passage. And he referred to it as the word that was preached to you. 
Neither, neither Isaiah nor Peter can make such statements without understanding God's preservation of Scripture. So we should keep in mind that when the Bible speaks of God's Word remaining forever, it cannot be referring to the being kept hidden away in a vault somewhere in heaven. God's Word was given specifically for mankind and would not be fulfilling its purpose, purpose if it were not available to us. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance, of the endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Some of you might remember that verse. It's in Romans, it's, uh, Romans 15, 4. Also note that the person cannot be saved apart from the gospel message, which is recorded in God's Word. Therefore, in order for the Word to be protected, if the Scriptures were not supernaturally preserved, there would be no way to ensure the consistency of the message it contains. If the Word of God is our salvation, if the power of God unto salvation is His Word that He's established, you know, it's pretty important that we have that record for the salvation of mankind. So... I'm going to go back and talk about the original autographs for just a moment. So if you ever are in these discussions and you're talking about Bible translations and all that, you're going to hear the words original autographs. You know, it's not like when Bobby Bonner autographs your baseball card. It means the original writings of what, you know, the prophet was given. Like all your letters and your epistles. You know, those are the original autographs. <clears throat> so do we have the original documents today? Are there any, anywhere existing on the planet Earth that we know of the originals? The answer is absolutely not. We do not know. Um, the question always becomes, how do we trust our Bible if we don't have the original autographs? Or another question, couldn't have God preserved his, uh, the originals for us if he's all-powerful? You guys ever think about that? Why didn't God just give us the originals? He's all-powerful. So why didn't he just give us the originals? There are so many speculations as to why God did not allow us to have the originals. You know, and if you've ever thought about it, if you, you know, what, what would be some of the reasons that God wouldn't give us the originals? You know, what you guys have to understand is when you have difficult questions like that, put his nature right in the middle of the question and it will kind of unravel. So if God is maximally great, if he's a good God, why would it be good for God to not allow us to have the original? You know, there's many speculations, but I've written down a few just from other theologians. Um, they could potentially be altered. Okay, so we wouldn't know if, um, if we did have the original, if somebody would make an attempt to actually change the original. That would have catastrophic effects, and you might be thinking, well, God would somehow supernaturally protect it, right? And that's probably true. But the question then becomes, how do we authenticate it? If the Word of God is going to endure forever, how do we go back and authenticate that truly was the original? You know, another, um, another reason is possibly that they would be worshipped. So you guys remember in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, when the people were getting bitten by serpents, and Moses was instructed to put the brass serpent on top of the pole, and he said, if you guys look at the brass serpent, you'll be healed. And then Jesus tells us in the New Testament that that was a picture of him, right? So, you know, just as a serpent be lifted up, so will the Son of Man be lifted up, so everybody that looks upon him will be healed. That leads to John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible. Well, we see later in the Bible, that brass serpent was being worshipped, kind of like a fetish item. You know, and so if there's things out there that mankind can get their hands on that they think are holy, like relics, they will no doubt worship them and it will take attention away from the true God. How are we supposed to worship God? In spirit and in truth, right? Are you worshiping the true God if you're going to go around worshiping manuscripts? So I think that may be one of the reasons. And if the copies were spread from an original source... 
um, it could be easily um, traced to where any errors would be if we detected them. So it's kind of an accountability check. I think we talked about this last time I spoke to you guys. If there's a big group of family manuscripts, if there's a large portion of manuscripts out there that we're comparing to see what we have that we might have from the originals, if, if everybody in here has a copy of my notes tonight and I tell you to copy them, and then you guys go out to all your friends and you guys move to different states and you guys are all sending out copies of my notes, eventually we can put together maps of what you guys are copying and we can see on different pages, on different places where you might have made an accidental mistake and we can track it to that point in time and then we can use all those errors actually to help us actually come to like reason what the originals might have said. You know, and that's, that's a discipline called textual criticism. You know, and the last one, which I think is really profound, is if we did have the originals, man would probably start wars over the possessions of them. You know, I'm sure um, there's some religious organizations out there that would love to have their hands on them and do just about anything to have them, including war if necessary. So that wouldn't be good. So I think God was maximally, him being his maximally great being was, was right to uh, do it the way he did. Not that I'm the judge, but there's some pretty uh, simple reasons why I think that he would do that. Now, when we talk about the Word of God, um, we have to understand something about what the, what the word word means, right? So basically, when you look at, at Greek, there's three different definitions for the word. You have graphe, which is the written down scripture, okay? So if you have holy writ. It's one of those old words that's a cool word to impress somebody that you want to impress. We have holy writ, right? That's the graphe. You also have the logos, Okay, the Lagos is the message okay, behind the Holy Writ. And then you have the Rhema. Okay? The Rhema is when you declare it or speak it. Okay? So when you're determining what the Word is, right? because Jesus was called the Word, well, which Word? Was He Scripture? Was He the Declaration? Was He the message of God? You know, the Bible says that he is the father exegeted. He is the explanation of God. He is the full revelation of God in flesh. He is the, the message of God. So he's called the Lagos. So when someone says to you, do we have the word of God today in our English translations, you can ask them, well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by the word of God today? You know, do you mean the graphe, the scripture? Do you mean the logos? Do you mean the message? Or do you mean the rhema, the utterance? Do we have the spoken utterance of the scripture today? So, what did God promise that he would preserve? The key to this verse, people often go to in order to prove that God's word would be handed down without error in our own language is Psalm 12, 6 through 7. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, that shalt preserve the, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Wow. I can't believe that was 20 minutes. Okay, so, can I get two seconds? Okay, on that psalm, guys, if you look at it in context, it would seem to be that that entire psalm is written about the preservation of God's people. Okay, so when you're talking about what he will preserve forever, if you take that in isolation, it looks like he's preserving his words for every generation. So people take that verse and they'll say, oh, well, that's clearly the translation from the original languages forever. We'll always have a translation available for 
forever. And uh, there's some um, scholars out there that have said from the actual Hebrew grammar that you really can't make a case for that, that the actual preservation was referring to the, the, the poor and the needy in the context of that verse, you know, which I'm sure he'll address. <laughs> but that's basically it, guys. Um, I'll handle some more stuff in our conclusions, but thank you for listening. You want to do your 20? Yeah, go ahead. Who wants to hear Josh slaughter me? Who wants Josh to win? Who wants me to win? Yeah. Right, so you need...
Search the scriptures, for in them we believe you have everlasting life. If we don't have the scriptures today, what are we basing our eternal life on? If we're all going to die someday, and we all want to go to heaven, it doesn't matter what religion you look at, it doesn't matter what world you look at, it doesn't matter who you talk to, whether they believe in heaven or hell, everyone someday believes there's a better place to go to, or you just go into the earth and over. We as Christians take the stand that when you die, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, that you go to heaven. Jesus Christ tells you the only way to heaven is by the Scriptures. And if you don't have it, if you don't have the Scriptures, you don't have any hope of salvation. You don't have any hope of salvation. But the second part of that is it says, through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. You know, when you, when you got saved, you put your faith in nothing more and nothing less than what Jesus Christ did for you. In the same way, the Word of God, it takes faith to believe the Word of God is in fact the Word of God. It's not blind faith. It's something we can put to the test. It's something that we can look at. It, but at the end of the day, we're putting faith in the Word of God. The Word of God contains promises, right? You've got promises of salvation. You've got promises of inheritance. You've got promises of eternity. You've got promises of a kingdom that's coming. You've got promises of a reign. You've got promises and promises and promises. But we've got promises that lead and guide you on how to get through this life as well. If you cannot, if you cannot trust the Word of God, you cannot trust those promises. Now, the second thing that I'm going to talk about here is in verse 16, where it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Tyler already touched on this, that said inspiration means God breathed. What we did not talk about, what was not talked about, is what comes after what was breathed. The very God-breathed words is what those holy men of God spoke in the Old Testament. God gave them the words, and they spoke what God told them to say. That's why any time they were quoting God, they had to say anything that God said. Right before they said what God said. And uh, it's the same way in the Word of God today. You've got the written Word of God as well. But then you've got the message of the Word of God. The preacher gets up and reads the Scripture and he tells you what the Scripture says. The message is what you can take by reading the Scripture and telling somebody else what the Scripture says about eternal life, about life on earth, about how to live a good life as a Christian. And guess what? The Bible also says what's right and wrong, and it tells us what's sin and what is not sin. But it's profitable for doctrine. You lose, in that translation, and many of the other modern versions that were doctrine. And in fact, I believe that it was quoted for teaching. The Bible is, in, the Bible is not just profitable for teaching. Doctrine is a very specific teaching on any given subject. But doctrine also includes prophecy. That's the first thing the Bible is profitable for. But it's also profitable for reproof. It tells you what's wrong. It's, it's, it's profitable for correction. It tells you how to, how to get what's wrong right. And then it's profitable for instruction and righteousness. It tells you how to live a good Christian life and how to be profitable as a Christian. If you don't have the Word of God, you don't have any of that. But in, in, in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says to Timothy, he says, preach the Word. Why would Paul say preach the Word if he didn't have it? Did Timothy not have the Word of God? Was Paul wrong? Did he not have the Word of God? And then at the end of it, in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 13, he says the cloak, he says in Tychicus, 
That's kind of a funny name. <laughs> that I sent to Ephesus. The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee, and the books, but especially the parchments. What's he talking about there? Was he talking about corrupted parchments and books? He's talking about the Old Testament. He's telling him, bring this with you. He needs these parchments. He needs these books. You think Paul was putting his faith in something that was not written, that was not preserved, that God promised to be preserved and written, ready to have and written with him? I take this man that he did. I believe that just as Paul had the written word of God then, we have the written word of God today that's perfect and inerrant and infallible and has everything in it that you, that you need. I believe that God has the power to preserve the word of God like he said it. I'm going to quote a guy here, and it may sound like some strong language, but consider this. This guy says, The same God that perfectly inspired the Scriptures has promised to perfectly preserve the Scriptures, not merely its teachings, but its very words. If inspiration was perfect, but preservation is only general, the entire matter is moved. It does not matter. Like what I said earlier, if you don't have inspiration, you don't have preservation. If you don't have preservation, then you don't have inspiration. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you have the originals. They don't exist. It doesn't do you any good. They don't exist. Nobody's ever found them. Entirely a lot of reasons of, of why that, that probably is, why they don't exist. But he goes on to say, to argue for an inspired Bible that no longer exists is vain jangling. The bottom line in this matter is that the same Bible that claims to be perfectly inspired also claims to be perfectly preserved. Our faith in this is not based on common sense. It's not about logic. It's not about logic. It's not about common sense. Though it is sensible to believe that if God, if God gave a perfect Bible, in the originals, why would we not also preserve it? Our faith is based on the promises of a God who cannot lie and of a God who is not the author of confusion. If we all come in here with our own Bible version, when I say to turn to 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, and I ask you to read verse, and I ask you to read, and I ask you to read it, and they all say different things, isn't that a little bit confusing? I would argue that it is. And I would also argue that God is not the author of confusion, and he doesn't have any part in that. I take the stance that there is a corruption of the Word of God today. I take the stance that Paul took. Paul took the stance that they were corrupting the very Word of God and the written Word of God in his day back in 70 to 90 AD. It started back then and it's been going on today. I believe that you can trace it throughout history. The popular choice today, the popular stance in Christianity today is not to say that you have a perfect infallible translation. But to take the stance that the Word of God is the Bible, a generic term, a generic term that is all-encompassing and doesn't narrow down anything. Every Bible is the Word of God. There's some Bibles that I think that should be absolutely, absolutely tried to put on the stand today, whether it is, in fact, the Word of God or not. Can we say that all Bibles are the Word of God? What are the differences? Why would we take a stance that some Bibles are some Bibles are corrupt? Well, hopefully we'll get to that. Well, how much time do I have left, Marshall? Seven twenty-three. Okay. So the popular decision 
is what many evangelical and fundamental men will write volumes about defining that word inspiration. They'll spend so much time defining inspiration, but in Romans 14, 23 it says, Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. If I am not of faith, take the Bible in my hand and say this is the preserved word of God, then that is sin. If we do not approach the study of how we got our Bible from the standpoint of faith, it's not pleasing to God. If you don't have faith, you can't do anything that pleases God. God requires faith for you to do anything and for Him to take pleasure in it. Jack Norman, he wrote a book, and uh, he wrote a book called Forever Settled. It's one of the greatest books, in my opinion, on the Word of God. But he, he gives that definition in Romans 14, 23, and he goes on to say, if we do not approach the study of how we got our Bible from the standpoint of faith, it's sin. If I cannot believe what God says about the preservation of His Word, then I cannot believe what He says about the inspiration either. All is sin if it's not a faith. And that goes to your walk with Christ as well. Let's see what the Bible says about it. What does the Bible say about itself? Regarding the preservation, it says, Faith stands on the Word of God. Let us see exactly what the Bible says about this matter in the matter of preservation. It goes on, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. I'm going to on this verse just for a minute. If you've got a King James translation today, Psalms chapter 12, verses 6 and 7 is a prophecy about the King James Version. That may sound very difficult to understand. But in the, the overall translation process of the English language that encompasses both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the King James Version is the seventh translation of the complete Bible. It fulfills Psalms chapter 12, verses 6 and 7 that is purified seven times. Seven times. The King James Bible is purified seven times. And as the English language transformed and grew and became what it, what it was from the 1300s up to what it was in 1600 to what it is in 1735 to what it is today, the King James Bible is still that seventh translation in the English language. Fulfilling Psalms chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. And I know that you mentioned earlier about the, the reference to that word then. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but something to consider. The majority of manuscripts, you've got about 5,270 manuscripts. That would, that would contain fragments, that would contain entire translations, it would, it, would, it would contain everything that they could find throughout history. But containing the majority text, they all say that word then is a reference to the words. The minority text that contains about 32 manuscripts says that that word then is a reference to the righteous in verses 1 through 5. The reason that's important is because the preservation in this verse is, is attacked by the corrupted text that says it's not, it's not a reference to the preservation of the text. It's a preservation to the righteous. If you take away the promises of the Bible, remember, you don't have any promises. You don't have any groundwork for putting faith in the Word of God. And when it comes to the Word of God, you've got to have faith in the promises, but you've got to understand that the words within the Word of God is exactly what God wants you to have today. And uh, let me wrap it up with this. We've got a few more, a few more verses. It says, "The counsel of the Lord standeth forever; the pots of His heart to all generations. For the Lord is good; His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endureth to all generations. The works of His hands are verily, verily in judgment; all His commandments are sure; they stand fast forever and ever, and are done in truth and uprightness. 
The truth of Lord endureth forever. Praise be the Lord. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words, plural, shall not pass away. Was Jesus lying? Was it just a reference to the generic word of God, or was it the words that Jesus was talking about there? I believe it's the words, just as it's preserved in the King James Bible. It says, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. And then Jesus caps the whole thing off and says, If any man love me, he will keep my words. Plural. That will be my introduction, and uh, should be about time. Right? Uh, yeah. right. What? You've got to stop me, bro. That's Josh. Yeah. All right. Do you want me to cross-examine you first, or do you want to cross-examine me first? Whatever you want, man. I'm already up here. So, if you want to... Alright, is this back on? Okay. Alright, we're going to transition to a cross-examination. So i got to go to the hot seat now. Come at me, bro. You ask me Oh, I don't. What do you want to do? You ask me first. Okay. So, guys, I apologize. When I timed my uh, my introduction, I didn't think I'd go 20 minutes. So, I didn't even really get to my introduction. A little bit of the uh, flavor of the alternative view, but you'll feel the flavor in my cross examination with Josh. So, I will try to ask quickly. How much time do we have on these? Okay, man. All right. Heavenly Father, please make some time. Slow down for us. In Jesus' name. Okay. So, we have some unique features of Hebrew and Greek. Hebrew has no vowels. It's all consonants, so it lends itself to wordplay. Greek, on the other hand, is the most precise language, one of the most precise languages on the planet. There's words in Greek that you can't even write a single sentence on in English to describe what the word is trying to communicate in Greek. So, I'll give you an example, okay? In the New Testament, you have John 12, or I'm sorry, John 21, 5 through 7. Everybody's familiar with this passage. Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Every time, Peter says, Lord, you know, you know I love you. Okay? So, in Greek, the very first time Peter says, Lord, do you love me? He asks him, uh, Peter, do you love me? But that word is agape. We've all know what agape is, self-sacrificing love, a godly love. And, G and Peter answers him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. I love you. But he used a brotherly love. So the, the, the communication from the, the agape to the phileo, it's a little different flavor in the Greek. So how do you reconcile that with like the preservation of the English, not having proper words for love in that case? What, how would you how would you reconcile that in just that one word love the two different meanings? <clears throat> so, um, in a sense, you're asking me to interpret the Greek, but but the short answer is not all Hebrew words and not all the Greek words are always translated the same way. And the rule is you don't have to translate them the same way every time. Now, an example to contrast this would be John three sixteen. Is it agape or is it phileo? I would think that it'd be agape, but I don't remember. Uh, that's what I'm asking. I mean, it's your I, yeah, it, it, 
what I'm getting at is the agape versus the phileo, when you, when you really want to break it down, they're not always used the same way. But uh, if, you, if you want to understand the difference, you can look at verses like that where you would think, where you would think that um, it, would, it would be the stronger sense of phileo versus the agape. But my stance is you do not have to know the Greek, you do not have to know the Hebrew. When we're talking about the Word of God, and specifically when we're talking about the translation of the Word of God, we've already mentioned the aspect of faith. And, uh, and I believe that God has given us a perfect translation. Thank you. So why do you think God chose English to give an inerrant, inerrant translation? Um, I don't think that he just chose English as the preservation of an inerrant, inerrant translation. In fact, um, one of the reasons why I don't is because the Old Testament wasn't all recorded in Hebrew alone. You had aspects of um, Chaldean, you had aspects of Persian, uh, you had aspects of Aramaic, and the uh, same for the New Testament. It's not all Greek. But the point is, the point is, when it comes to the English translation, I believe that God has preserved His Word and given it to us in the language that I speak. In fact, the majority of the world speaks English, and uh, when it comes to the English translation, I think that God foreknew that the majority of the world would speak English. Do you have a um, site or a source for that? That the majority of the world speaks English? If you do, that'd be awesome. If you do, send it to me. Um, well, I could use Bobby Bonner. He was in the middle of Africa and said the majority of Zambians speak English and have a second language as well. So English has a second language. Okay. Now, are there any other languages that you're aware of that also have an inerrant translation? Yes. And how do you judge that? You've got, see, this is why it's so important to, to understand where the Bible comes from. And you mentioned the family lines. Um, when you look at the manuscript side on the evidence trail of where the Bible came from throughout history, it, it's absolutely one of the most important things that you can study if you ever need to get to that point in your Christian walk, where the Bible was throughout history. You can trace the King James translation throughout history all the way back to Enoch. And uh, you can also trace the corrupt versions all the way back to Alexandria, Egypt. And, uh, um, you know, you look at the translators and you look at the responsibility of who was, who, was, who was responsible for the written word of God. You mentioned the Old Testament was the scribes and they had a really meticulous process for keeping the word of God. It's, it's a little different in the New Testament and I think that we've got a responsibility for preservation of the word of God today. Okay. This one's a tricky one, guys. Put on your thinking caps. Does a perfect translation mean perfect interpretation? So, Does that make sense? Does the question make sense? Even if I have a perfect inerrant translation from the original autographs, does that automatically mean everybody's going to interpret it the same? So here's what I would say. Within the framework of that question contains something that you probably wouldn't catch. The framework of that question has what you would call a presupposition. The presupposition being that there is included within translation interpretation. What I mean by that is the Word of God is not something that is supposed to be and ever has been interpreted by man. The Word of God has to be interpreted by the Holy Spirit 
for spiritual things or discern about spiritual things. The carnal man does not understand the things that are spiritual. So when we apply the carnal side to the spiritual side, and as an awareness, but when it comes to translation, it's traceable, it's not open to interpretation. I don't know if that answered your question. I'll let them be the judge. <laughs> okay. Um, without the original autographs, meaning you have no idea what the original autographs say, how do you justify a single translation being errant without arguing in a circle? You guys ever heard that? circular? You guys know what circular reasoning is? The Bible is true because the Bible says so? This would be, why is, it, why is he not arguing that the King James is the inspired, inerrant word of God because the King James says so? Does that make sense? Yeah, so the King James doesn't say that the King James Version is inerrant, by the way. Um, the translation, the words within that translation claim inerrancy. And that would then allow to claim the preservation of the word of God. Now, here's what I'm saying. All right, give me a I, I will yield some, some conclusion time. I'll take about 30 seconds um, yeah. to answer this. Now, your stance is that the originals were, if you, if you had the originals, that is the inspired word of God, right? I know that it's your question time, but I would. would you answer that for me? Say it again. The originals is what was inspired, not the translation. Um, correct. Okay. God oversaw the preservation, but the only the original autographs were what was actually God breathed. So, so my stance is that's a two-way street. Um, you, you can't you can't put it all on the King James guys. Only here's my reasoning for that. You have got multiple Old Testament quotations in the New Testament. What I mean is the Old Testament that contained Hebrew, Aramaic, Egyptian. All these other languages, not to mention the fact that you had the Tower of Battle before all the confusion of the languages, preserved in a Bible that was quoted in another language in the New Testament, yet written down in the original New Testament. So if we're going to claim that translation cannot be inspired, you have to throw out the whole New Testament. Jesus quoted the Old Testament, and it was written down what Jesus quoted. Was that not inspired? I, I would almost say that, well, that's okay. For lack of time. I have one more question. One more question? Okay. So I'm going to read two different translations. Okay. This is the KJV versus the New King James. And John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. KJV. Here's the New King James. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Is there only one pure word there? Or is both of them sufficient? Do you go, in other words, do you go verse by verse, or do you go, do you, do you focus on a single word, like, like, whosoever believes versus whosoever believeth, is because it's a different word, does that mean it's not pure anymore, or are we looking at the logos, the graphe, the message from the written? Well, what, what I would argue in, in regard to the New King James versus the King James, especially in, in these instances, these are the arguments that you'll get. You know, you've got you've got a really, really small difference, right? They're not that they're not that significant. You've got believes versus believe it. Okay, obviously we know that those that they both are a past tense, um, a passive, a passive verb. But when it comes to the translation side of it, I, personally, I don't see an issue with believe it versus believes. But here's what I'll tell you. 
when we sneak in little examples like that, it's easy to be confused when it comes to the bigger issues. And I think you would agree with that. But, but here's what I mean. The New King James translation, they claim that it's all based off of the same text that the King James was translated off of. And they will tell you that it's just an updated language to get those small little updates that the King James is archaic in those senses that, that you can't understand them because of those words like believe it or these and vows and those those types of words. But what I would say is if you really if you really look at it, the New King James, the New King James Bible and the, the translators when, when they told you that it came from the same text, they lied to you. They didn't come from the same text. They came from the text which receptus, but they also included Vaticanus and Semiaticus. And uh those two are Thank you, sir. All right, I'm going to jump into my cross-examination really quick. Tyler, let me know when you're ready. Fire away, brother. Okay. Um, so, regarding inspiration, I want to I want to quote you here. You said, "When people speak of the Bible as inspired." They were referring to the fact that God divinely influenced the human authors of the scriptures in such a way that when they wrote, that what they wrote was the very word of God. So the originals was the word of God. But then you go on to say it was the verbal plenary inspiration that was actually inspired. So my question is, is it what was written or is it what was spoken? What was written versus what is spoken? Yeah. I would say that it comes down to those three definitions of the word. You have the spoken word, you have the utterance, you have the, the logos, which is the, the message of what was written, and then you have the, you know, the, gra the graphe, which is the actual script itself. I think I said those right. I might have made a mistake. But I think that the position in this camp would be that the logos, the actual meaning, the actual message, that was what was given to the original inspired person for the purpose of the proclaiming of the word. So you, earlier you said the logos was Jesus Christ, so that would be the incarnate word, right? Correct. So when you're talking about the verbal plenary inspired word of God being given to these guys in the logos form, how is that given to them? You mean through inspiration? Yeah. How was it given to them? Yes. Um, I, well, there's a lot of debate on that. There's a lot of um, there's I've, I've heard all different kinds on this. Some some prophets, for example, were given audibly, and you get that a lot in the Old Testament. They'll say, "Thus saith the Lord." I think you know it was clear that God literally spoke to Moses. But the case of Paul in prison, I think that Paul was under the guidance and the inspiration. You know, a lot of the New Testament writers were put in these specific positions by God. God, in His foreknowledge, knew what they were facing and experiencing in order to write an account. And I think that God was the overseer of what was written because He knew, you know, what they would write, when they would write it, and how it would be preserved. So I think when it comes to the actual transmission from God's mind to the human mind in order for the purpose of graphe to give us the writ in order to have the logos, the meaning, in order for it to be proclaimed, the actual um, proclamation of the word, I think it was all under the divine hand. I think there's, you know, whether it be God's 
oversight or God's actual spoken word to a prophet, I think that there's some differences of opinion, and I think it would be a case-by-case -case basis. So you would, say, you would say that it was verbal? In some cases. It was written, and it was spoken, right? Verbal. Are you asking... I'm, okay, so communication is information. So if I'm going to communicate, it's in here, and you don't have what's in here in your head. So I will speak it, and then you can write it down, and then you can proclaim it. And that's how a transmission would come. Is that what you're at? It sounds like you're asking me how that process happened for each prophet. Well, I'm asking if, if the inspiration of the Word of God is preserved in those three forms. I would say, I would say, definitely in the graphe. If I'm going to be speaking from this position, I don't, I don't know how every person believes, but I would think the majority of the people would say only the, the graphe, the written, was inspired, and then when the prophets actually proclaimed, I would say that that was under the, the guidance and the foreknowledge of God. But I don't think that they would say that it was. Um, necessarily inspired, it just stemmed from the inspiration of the communication given to them. So regarding preservation, would you, would you connect inspiration and preservation together in a separate? I would say they're connected to an extent from this position. Um, like, like we talked about the, the manuscript families, um, the idea that there are differences and variants even amongst the different families. I think God has given us all an intellect. I think he's all given us discernment. And like you said, that he's given us the spirit of God, which uh, you know understands spiritual things. So I think um, in his sovereignty, he is elected to provide us with an ability to discern from the evidence that we have where the word of God is. Um, and it ultimately comes down to faith. Like, what, what words are you going to hang your life on versus what transmission process are you going to go, eh, I don't think they got this one right. So when, when you define the, the Bible as the word of God, it's verbally inspired, it is inerrant. What Bible are you talking about? Okay, I'm going to try not to break character here. The written word. Okay. The inspiration of the written word. Do we have that? that is the word of God. Do we have that? I would say from this perspective that they would argue, yes, that amongst the manuscript distribution, that so it's, it's there. Yes, and amongst the variation, there is definitely corruption, whether that's intentional or whether that's accidental. I think that there is a human... Again, I'm trying not to break character. I think there's definitely a human component to transmission and translation that God has automatically accounted for in the original inspiration. So when it comes to the corruption of the word God, who decides what's corrupt? I think that is for the discernment of the individual. Okay, so when it comes to specific Bible translations today, are there any that you would throw out there that's definitely corrupt? Yes. Which ones? I would say... Some of the ones that are complete paraphrases, okay. I, th I don't think that they are. I think that for somebody on milk, a brand new baby Christian, I think that they can be profitable to an extent, but as one grows and matures, I think that they will find that they will, you know, but that's my, that's my personal, honest opinion so on is that. There, is there any absolute objective truth that is not subjective to 
each individual Christian to decide through variation which room it is and what it's not. I'd say we're going to find out at the beam seat. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. So regarding regarding God's words and the preservation that He promised His words wouldn't pass away and that He would keep us from this generation forever, what do you mean by that? I'm talking about the Psalm Psalm 12. No, I'm talking about Jesus Christ Himself. He said, "Heaven and earth shall pass away, but My words shall not pass away." I think the the word in that instance was logos. It was it was it was plural. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to answer that? Um, if you would, and then to follow up with that, you knew where I was going because you and I had already talked about uh -huh. it. Um, we've talked about a specific translation in the ESV of Colossians 1.14 specifically regarding salvation. And we've, we've talked about you cannot be saved without applying the blood of Jesus Christ to your soul. Correct. Your sin specifically. And uh, so my question is, is, uh, Do you guys know what verse he's talking about? It might be good for them to open up, and then I can give. Will somebody read Colossians 1:14? Because this is really important for you guys. It's okay. You can make more. Hey, did we have any guests for the first time tonight, by the way? We did? We got one? Can I give you a present? Give you a present for buddy. Here, pass this over. Hey, he, he just destroyed the infallible, inspired Word of God. He just destroyed it. I want that on the record. <laughs> Listen up, guys. This is going to blow your minds. Okay. I'll, I'll repeat it for him. Where do you want to? Okay. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So my question is, and then all I went to, you can't have. Redemption without the blood of Jesus Christ, right? We all agree with that. Now, the majority of birth, any Bible version takes out through the blood. And my argument would be you lose the doctrinal aspect of salvation by removing that. How would you answer that? Okay, and so I'm going to read you guys the ESV from that verse so you see what he's talking about. Okay. Um, he says Colossians 1. 14, is that what you said? Okay. So the King James is, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even forgiveness of sins. The ESV says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So somebody on this side of the table, somebody from this perspective would say, look, it says that we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins through Jesus. We do. You find out in other places within the ESV that it is through the shed blood. There is no remission of sin without the shed blood. So somebody in this position would say, because we lose clarity on a doctrine in this verse, doesn't mean we lose the doctrine completely. So somebody from this perspective would say, and I'll let him address this, they'll say, well, the majority of the manuscript evidence points to that through his blood isn't there. 
So when they look at the manuscripts and they say, well, through his blood isn't written in the majority of the textual evidence that we have. So those that decided to translate the ESV would have said, well, I don't see it in the majority of the manuscripts, so we're going to go ahead and just put, we have redemption and forgiveness of sins, even though we know it's through his blood. Does that make sense? The argument on this side of the room would be they wanted to, even though they knew that through the blood was a forgiveness, we're going to go ahead and just put what the text says because they wanted to be faithful to the actual text, not the actual doctrine. So I'll let you address that. Uh, okay. Do we want to go to closing statements? Or do, you mm. wanna, do you guys want to close out with questions real quick? Questions. Questions. All right. I'll, let me address this real quick, then we'll open it up to you guys. So regarding this, this is what blows my mind. And why it's so important to, to take it by faith. Now, here's what scholarship will tell you. They will tell you that Colossians 1.14 is an interpolation of Ephesians 27 that tells you that it's through the blood of Jesus Christ that you have redemption. What that means is they will tell you Colossians was written after Ephesians was already written. Therefore, they take Ephesians and apply it to Colossians, and now you've got something that was recorded in the 4th century that wasn't there 400 years before that. Here's what blows my mind about it. The majority of these new versions take it out because they don't see it in what they had was the, the, the majority text up to that point that didn't have it in there. Now, they said, well, it's not in there. Well, what do you do with that? It's not in there. Okay, well, here's the great part about it, the amazing part to me about how God does things sometimes. In 1947, they discovered what was called papyrus. Guess what? These date back to the first and second century that they had through the blood in Colossians 1.14. That's not the only example either. I'm not jumping ship, but that's not the only example, but it is profound. Well, that's why it's important to have faith regarding your translation. Okay, who's got questions? And when you ask a question, you have to tell us who you're addressing it to. That is, here, take this mic and just pass it around. The most spoken language in the world is Chinese, with 1,284,000,000 people speaking, and English has 372,000,000 people. Okay, correct. <laughs> if you add together two populations of native, native English-speaking countries, which I did, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, UK, and the United States, you come out at 450,000,000. But that's native English-speaking, if you add together those who speak it as a second language, it accounts to approximately 50 that did not happen. By the way, the King James, the King James manuscript text has been translated into the And the Texas Receptus. <laughs> who's up? Who's got a question? Anybody? Alex, tell us who it's addressed to. <laughs> you can call me handsome, you can call me T-Hood, whatever. 
Matthew 18, 11. Yeah. You have it pulled up? Matthew 18, 11. Mm-hmm. For the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. Or are you trying to, do you want it in the English Standard Version? It's not in there. Exactly. <laughs> Bible lock. <laughs> yeah, and then whoever, uh, whoever would be sitting on this side of the room would say, show me the evidence that that was in the earliest manuscripts. And show me the evidence that the, the um, Texas Receptus didn't, the guys who did the Receptus didn't add it later because they, it was a doctrine that they were committed to. That's what they would say. They would say, okay, well, that's a doctrine they're committed to, so they were Trinitarians, so they added it. So now it was up to you to determine whether or not you believe it was added or it was purposely removed. I believe it was purposely removed. All right, let me all respond to that on, on my specific thing. Yeah. Um, what I would respond to is, one, it's not a Trinitarian doc, doc, uh, doctrine, it doesn't have anything what I, would, what I would also respond to is there's a litmus test on deciding what is and what isn't in there. And uh, when it comes to the preservation of that text, it's in the majority. Hmm. Madison, who's got a vote? Don. Tyler, earlier you were talking about how uh, people can interpret mm -hmm. scripture however they feel it, it, it says to them. Uh, in 2 Peter 1.20, it says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the script of I'm sorry, of the scripture is of any private interpretation. Mm -hmm. How would you answer that? I would I would agree with Peter. I would agree that whenever I'm wrong on a doctrine, I would say that is my fault, not God's. I would say that, um, I, I, you know, if, if you're asking me personally, I, this can be on either side of the argument. This can be on the King James side or the any translation side. Um, there's there's people that that are that do believe in the infallibility of the King James that are definitely messed up on some doctrine. Um, so if if every prophecy is of you know. There is no private interpretation of any prophecy. Um, I would just say simply that we have to let the word interpret the word and we do our best. Um, that we definitely unify on the essentials of the faith, but there's some, some areas that are, that are a little bit more fuzzy. And um, we have to trust that God is going to lead us to a place where we um, arrive at truth. I think that when we're at the Bema Seat of Christ, what you did with Christ um, what you did with the doctrine of um, what you did with Christology, what you did with the death, burial, and resurrection, and the forgiveness of sins and the atonement, um, and then the the works that you did flowing from that truth that you redeemed, you're saved, and you're sealed. I think that's ultimately what we're going to be judged on. Um, so, I, I again, this is my personal opinion. 
on these other interpretations of prophecies, um, I try to pick and choose the hills that I'm willing to die on because if I'm so dead certain that I'm correct on things that um, may not potentially point me into an area of holiness and holy living, um, say like the interpretation of Daniel's 70th week, for example, um, that's interpreted all different ways. I don't see how that doctrine specifically is going to affect how I treat my wife. So how I interpret that, I'm going to hold on that and be a little bit more open to that type of prophecy. Um, and I think that would be wise for whatever side you sit on. Does that answer? Sure. Or? Except doesn't the Bible just speak for itself? Absolutely. Absolutely. So you don't have to figure it out on your own. You don't have to change uh, the King James to the New King James to the next version of the New King James to the next version of the New King James because isn't that interpretation? Um... Let me see if I understand your question question correctly. How, 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 okay, so what the King James in your lap right now isn't the 1611, correct? That is correct. So when you go from one to another, what are you changing? It wasn't a revision, it was an addition. Right. Yeah. Okay, so are you, are you saying like when it comes to the next Addition. I want to make sure I use the correct language. The next edition that's not up for private interpretation, or are you just talking about specific doctrine? I'm, I'm talking about in general. That if I read a verse and I think it says one thing, and Pierce reads a verse and he thinks it some says one thing, that if you stand on that, mm -hmm. then you would be could be misinformed. And so if you have a different version of the Bible in ESV or something, you could be misinformed. Right. So that the Bible should speak for itself. And if, going back to how it, uh, the King James Version came out of Antioch mm -hmm. versus Egypt and how many translations, I know they really talked about copyright, um, somebody making money off of that either. Um, that's what I'm talking about. I'd say to that, there's, um, there's, I'm trying to think how I want to answer this from this side of the table. Um, I think they would just say you would have to use discernment. If there's definitely a doctrine that's affected by the manuscript evidence on one side, then you need to be well informed of the other position in order to come to your own personal conclusion which doctrine you want to believe and how you want to believe it. I will say that people on this side are definitely divided on a lot of what the Bible says, just like on that side. So we got to do our best to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you again for our time. Thank you so much, God, for getting, uh, for allowing this to happen. For for Tyler being willing to do this and, and to present the the, uh, the the standard, the the side, of, the other side of um, the argument on preservation. Lord, hopefully it was profitable. Hopefully somebody can come out again and want to study your word more and grow in in, in their relationship with you. Lord, we love you. We give you all the honor and praise. In Jesus' name, Amen. Have a good night.
I will add one thing, guys, since I'm into apologetics. If you're confused on this issue at all and you want some stuff that will really edify you, come see me. I'll give you some, some lockdown knowledge so you can trust the Bible that's in your hand.